all my days. You're perfect in all your ways. Hail Jesus, you're my Lord. And I will obey your word. I want to see your kingdom come. Not my will, but yours be done. Hail, hail, line of Judah. How wonderful you are. Hail, hail, line of Judah. How powerful you are. Glory, glory to the Lamb. You take me into the land. We will conquer in your name. And proclaim it, Jesus reigns. Yeah. Hail, hail, line of Judah. How wonderful you are. Hail, hail, line of Judah. How powerful you are. Let's do it again. Glory, glory to the Lamb. You take me into the land. We will conquer in your name. And proclaim that Jesus reigns. Hail, line of Judah. How wonderful you are. Hail, line of Judah. How powerful you are. How powerful you are. Yeah. How powerful you are. Amen. Amen. Praise that name. Amen. My brothers. Manfully done. It is a privilege to stand before you tonight, privilege to have a chance to fellowship <laughs> and eat a good steak. That's a privilege. Here's some realities that you might not have heard. The world makes a big deal of um, sort of, you know, identity politics and, and what group are you in and what's happening to your group? They talk a lot about equality and they talk a lot about now, they quit talking about equality and they want to talk about equity, which does not mean equality. Equity, that's something else altogether. <laughs> but with their obsession and all of their pretended concern about humanity, here's a number of things that they overlook. Right now, according to this one particular from Mark Perry American Enterprise Institute, from the American Enterprise Institute, here's a few realities. When it comes to the number of men dying from drug overdoses right now, there are two 
times as many men as there are women. There are double the number of men dying from drug overdoses as there are women. And those numbers with regard to drug overdoses have skyrocketed as a result of all that has taken place over the last year. In the, in the name of saving us from a virus that is only truly a danger to a very few of us, they have killed many of us. And one of the many ways that people are dying, in my own state of Maine, I don't even know what's going on down here, in my own state of Maine, the drug overdose death rate doubled and has completely eclipsed the number of people dying from COVID, even though they exaggerate that number. They exaggerate that like crazy. They can't understand the difference between somebody dying from it or dying with it. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they understand it, they just lie. Do you think it's possible your government could be lying, do you? There's enough Cubans in the room to know that governments lie. We had the very first great white attack which, which killed the woman, the New Jersey woman up in the state of Maine. That was the first great white attack, the first shark attack fatality since the 1700s. Which you should know that was probably counted as a COVID death because she was only there to get away from the you know, trouble in New Jersey. Double the number of men to women dying from drug overdoses. There are two times as many what the world wants to call alcoholics, which I call drunkards because the scripture does. You hear the term alcoholic and you think that's a disease, some kind of a clinical term and somehow another person caught it. You don't catch it. You give it to yourself. The scripture speaks of drunkards, not alcoholics. Alcoholic sounds like victim. Drunkard sounds like someone who's guilty of something. You understand that there are double the number of male drunks as there are female drunks. Two times as many men as women are completely owned by alcohol. This was not a big surprise, but there are twice as many men as women who are actually what they like to now call homeless. Okay, homeless is a new term. The old term was poor or bum. The old term. We used to talk about bums and hobos. You know, people that kind of just dropped out and gave up. And uh, but now they're in a special class. They're 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 given a set of rights that they never had before. Especially in our cities. I don't know what it's like in Miami, but probably not as bad as it is in California. In the major cities in California, they they've they've treated them like they're a special subspecies of humanity, and they ought to have the freedom to just empty their bowels anywhere they want to, right? But the vast majority of them are men. Most of the drunks in America are men. Most of the drug addicts in America are men. Most of the homeless are men. How about this one? Do you know that there are 
four times as many men committing suicide as there are women. Did you guys know that? Probably wouldn't hear it on your daily news. Four times as many men as women that are killing themselves, and they do it in a variety of ways. And, that, and by the way, that's, that is separate from the drug overdose deaths. If many of those drug overdose deaths were actually suicides and categorized like that, it would be even worse than four times. And what's going on? What's the deal with that? Why? Why is it so? My brothers, I submit to you that men are made for a cause. They're designed by God to have a cause. And we are surrounded by a culture that is ultimately causeless, truthfully. Even those who think they've got a cause, it's not even a worthy cause. I mean, think about the, the emptiness and vanity of life lived under the assumption that we're just animals. And that we just evolved, and ultimately, what are we? Nothing but just stardust bumping into each other. And why does anything even matter? And when you, if, if you actually believe that, which is weird, so many people do, if you actually believe that, why bother to persecute Christians? Why bother? Why actually bother to infringe upon the rights of Christians? Why, why, why do anything? Why be upset that Christians are doing it? Why, why even do anything that, right now you think about how many people are obsessed with, um, you know, social good, what they call virtue signaling and all that junk, trying to get everybody else to conform and, and, and behave. Why does anything matter if all we are or just intelligent animals who are going to live for a little while and then die and cease to exist. See, I really believe that it is our estrangement from God. It takes its toll on everybody. Our estrangement from God, our rebellion against God, it takes its toll on everybody, men and women alike. But it's a sad reality that what is happening to manhood in our culture, and nobody even speaks about it. And I forget talk to you about it at the beginning of this thing tonight because you're men. This is uh, relevant to you. But you're different men than all of those statistics because you have a cause. And, and that cause for the Christian is the worthiness of our king. The cause for us Christians is to please someone else. Three primary motivations compel us to do everything that we do. Or they keep us from doing the things that we don't do. You guys all know that, right? Three primary motivations that, motiv that, that make us do the stuff we do and the stuff that we don't do. Two of those motivations are identical to the motivation of the animals, truthfully. Two of the motivations, two out of the three, are identical to the beasts that God made. Because you guys know there, there's a war going on between predator and prey. It's been going on ever since sin came into the world. And in that conflict between predator and prey, especially the predators, they're always weighing out 
an opportunity. It's amazing how much actual math, uh, like a big cat will do. I don't know how much math bears do, but a big cat, like, like a mountain lion here in North America, will actually even overcome the fear of humanity and look at humans out away from you know, the houses and everything else. Usually it's a runner or a jogger and they're always lightweights. And, um, and a big cat will weigh it out, actually doing some math. And they're, they're considering, what are they considering? They're considering the potential payoff. But what's the other thing they gotta consider? The risk, the cost. That's right. It could cost them. They don't want to get hurt. They don't want to expend a lot of fuel. They don't want to take a chance on expending massive amounts of fuel and then getting nothing back for it. So they're always weighing that out. They're looking at those little skinny dudes on them cycles. <laughs> they, they always dress like Spider-Man. I'm... Uh, I don't want to pick on any cyclist in the room. But we did ride bikes when we were kids. Our whole childhood we pedaled and we didn't have to dress like Superman to do it. We didn't have to dress like Spider-Man or the Flash. We didn't have to put tights on. Anyway. But the big cats are looking at the guys in tights and they're going, I think it's worth it. <laughs> There's enough meat on that skeleton <laughs> and it'll pay off and I'm pretty sure I can take him without getting hurt. So even an animal will be motivated by the potential reward, the potential payoff, but also a wise animal has to factor in it could cost them. So, you know, if you, if you can turn around and confront the cat, you know, that doesn't work for the tiger but uh, certainly with a mountain lion. Been enough mountain lion human fights where people have actually done okay. Word's gotten out to the mountain lions, right? <laughs> Do you remember that? It was a couple of years ago. It's an Arkansas guy out in Utah. He gets in a conflict with his, basically it was a juvenile mountain lion, but he ended up killing it with his bare hands. It actually happened, tall, lanky guy. He got the thing in the right position. He was able to keep it from raking him with his back legs, got his knee on its neck because it clamped down on his arm. So he, he used that and then just basically out of his windpipe, cut his air supply off. Did you hear that one? You know he was in trouble for doing that? Oh yeah, believe me. And all those animal rights activists were outraged that he, that, that was that animal's habitat. And that human had no business being there. And then, you know, being there, he should, <laughs> oh my goodness, the insanity of modern thinking. That he probably should have just let him, let the cat eat him. That would have been a moral right to the lunatics, especially the PETA crowd. But what about us? Should we not be, as men in business, or as men making decisions, as men um, weighing out opportunities, it's wisdom that would cause us to consider what's in it for us. How is it going to pay off? 
But at the same time, we can't be blind to the potential risks either, right? But you, listen, you, you, you and I, you know what freedom is? Freedom is being able to manage your own risks. Freedom is being able to say, I'll be in charge of my risk. Gosh, think about that. Think about the numbers of people. Forget, forget the, the pandemic, the plandemic, scandemic, whatever you want to call it. Forget that for just a moment. And just think about how many people die annually from automobiles. There's an epidemic for you. The numbers are astronomical. The, the numbers are frightening. In how the world has the government not seized upon that and determined we've got to, if, if it saves one life, that's the new standard, right? Take everybody's driver's license from you, take your automobiles from you, and eliminate our roads. Only a few professionals. We'd be outraged. We would all say, you know what? I will manage my own risk. And that's called freedom. I know, you know, I, I can make the determination of whether or not it's safe. Is it worth it? We can take the measures we take. We'll buckle our seatbelts, driver safety, safety laws, speed limits, stop signs. All of that's relevant. But I'm telling you guys, way, way, way more people die from car accidents than die from any disease that we've got going. But we've all determined as a modern society that, okay, there's a lot of risk involved with automobiles, but we said it's worth it to be able to travel, to be able to have access to, you know, great distances and all of that. All right, so obviously there's cost and we're the ones that ought to be weighing that out. We ought to be the ones who are compelled by the potential payoff and we should be also motivated to do certain things and not do certain things based on a cost or put it this way, a fear of punishment. Spiritually speaking, if we study the scriptures and particularly if we, if we just focus on the teaching of our Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Think about how many times in the Sermon on the Mount he uses the word reward. How many times he says, in fact, he even uses the religious leaders and says, these losers, they settle for little tiny reward. Everybody pet them on the back going, yeah, you, you're spiritual, you know? When he tells them there's a greater reward that those losers are missing out on and the Lord Jesus says, like for prayer, he says, pray to your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's a bigger reward that we ought to be compelled by. The son of God sought to motivate his followers by the promise of payoff, the promise of reward. It is legitimate for us to be compelled by the promises that he made. And hopefully you are. Hopefully you and I or all of us actually believing that he's credible, the one who made the promise, and he says, you live like this or you turn your back on that and it's gonna pay off for you. Down this road, there is blessing. God makes promises. Down this road, there's blessing. But he also issues warnings and says, down that road, there is cursing. 
there is trouble. Think about that. 30th chapter of Deuteronomy, where he, through Moses, says to the people of Israel, two ways you can go. <laughs> I set before you two paths. Life down this road, death down this other road. Blessing, life and blessing down this road, death and cursing down this other road. And then God goes, choose life. <laughs> Please, he's like, choose life, come on. But it all comes right down to whether or not we actually believe God. Do we believe him when he warns that down one road there's nothing but trouble, cursing. Down the other road, there's blessing. Why do we marry? Why do we even start a family? Well, we're compelled with a belief that it is good and that it will bring along with it cost. Goodness sake, all kinds of that. But we determined it's worth it, didn't we? We said, we who are married, we said, it's, it's worth it. I, I would rather have the cost and have the joy of these relationships with my wife and my children than to be alone and be miserable or, or just, you know, in the company of friends. There are some of us who have waited out, most of us. <laughs> oh, certainly there's some people who apparently thought it was going to all be bliss all the time. And they married up. They just followed their feelings. They felt their way in. And now they're doing all they can not to feel their way out of their marriage. They had no idea it was going to cost so much. They had no idea it was going to be so much maintenance involved in a person. <laughs> there are some guys who apparently nobody told them that a woman's primary need is to know that she is loved. And it's never done. Ever. It's like you are filling a leaky barrel. You fill that thing. And one day and you come back next day and it's all gone. And you, you go, what in the world? Didn't I just fill this thing? Yes, but it leaks. There are men in marriage that are shocked. Nobody told them that. Apparently they didn't know that. And it was like, this is too, this is too much work. There's some serious wimps among men. And they just go, oh, this is a terrible, this is a terrible marriage. It's terrible. They just go, I'm quit. I'm not filling that leaky bucket anymore. I'm done. It's too needy. <laughs> Remember how the Lord Jesus said you should count the cost? He did say that. In fact, he said, you know, if a guy's gonna go to war, better involve some math. Remember what he said? How do you know you got enough guys to beat that guy coming with his other many guys? You better do the math first. All right, when building, who doesn't do the cost? Who doesn't do the math and really weigh in the cost building? If you don't, you run out of money. Remember what the Lord said? Everybody's gonna go by and see your unfinished house and go, what a loser. That's a paraphrase. <laughs> gonna look at your unfinished thing and go, dude, Apparently can't do math. Everybody's going to do that. Everybody's going to go, wow. He started, but he never finished that place. <laughs> you got to count the cost. But the promise of reward 
and the warnings from Christ about punishment should compel us. Nobody talked about reward as much as the Lord Jesus did. And he gave us parables, and in the parables he talked about masters trusting servants with resources, giving them a period of time to do what they could, do business with those resources, and then showing up to reckon with them. Remember those parables? So many of them. What was the point? It's that way in the kingdom of God. That God has entrusted all of us with opportunity. That God has entrusted us with abilities. God has granted us a certain amount of time. And in that time, remember that one in, in Luke chapter 16? Remember that one steward where he was accused to the owner of the business. He's the manager, but he's accused. Somebody went to the owner and said, this manager of yours is wasting your resources. Remember what happens? That manager gets called in to the owner and the owner goes, I'm firing you. He tells him what he's gonna do. I'm gonna fire you. I hear you're wasting. And he makes an appointment to fire him. You bring the books and you show up. And the guy, the guy goes, oh no, what am I gonna do? The manager's like, what am I gonna do? I can't go do manual labor. But I'm way too proud to beg. I'm in a real dilemma. But wait. He's like, I'm still the manager. I still have the books. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to everybody that owes this guy money. Because I still have the authority to cancel his debt or to collect on it. I can make deals. So he does. He goes to one guy, how much do you owe? And the guy tells him, he goes, cut it in half. Write a check right now. In fact, he even uses the word quickly. Because this is a limited time offer. Right? We've got to do this now. And he did that with a series of them. And by doing that, he made some friends. He opened up some doors for himself. Well, the owner of the business had to actually tell him, you know what? I got to give it to you. That was smart. He didn't do that business any good, but he did himself some good. And it's the owner's like, I should have fired you when I told you I was going to fire you. He commended him. Not that he did him any favors, but he commended him because he recognized a limited window and he acted in time for it to actually pay off for him. We should be motivated by the promise of reward if, in fact, we're biblical thinkers. But we should also be motivated by the fear of consequences because they're real and the Son of God was like graphic. He, nobody gave us the kind of details about hell that Christ gave. We have like sketchy details from the Old Testament, only that there is one, right, a hell. Son of God comes along and tells us it's so bad, it's so bad. If your eyes your problem, just gouge it out. If your eye's the problem, gouge it out and throw it from you. Better to go into life with one eye than into hell with both of them. If your right hand's the problem, cut it off and then throw it from you. Cast it from you. Better to go in with a stub to life than to hell with two hands. And the Lord Jesus said then into hell fire. And he talks about the smoke of their torment rising forever. He talks about things like where the worm won't die. 
The worm. What's the worm? That's something that, you know, they speculate on. Because he left it up to us to just imagine. He didn't tell us. I think most of the scholars believe the worm that won't die is the awful remorse about what could have been. All the chances that came and went. That a man would be in hell forever going, what I could have been. How stupid, how foolish. He, the Son of God says, that hell is so bad, you gotta do whatever it takes to avoid it. Then he also says, if, you know what, he talked to a group of men. He was, he was actually talking to men. He had brought a little child among them and said, you wanna be really great? Humble yourself like this child. Just be humble. And then with the kids still there, he says, it would be better for a man to have a millstone tied around his neck and him cast into the sea with it than to be guilty of leading one of these little ones astray. Well, let me tell you something you might not know. You might not know. Early in America, we used to transport convicts by shackling a steel ball on a chain to their one ankle. Because then you got to pick it up to go, and you're really not going to outrun, you're not going to escape. And if we're going to put them out working on a chain gang, on a road crew, cutting weeds or swinging a pick, the ball and chain, it, it slowed them down. It kept them from running away. Well, so because of that in, in our culture, people talked about marriage, responsibility of a, of a wife and children, and their, their single life is over and their freedom is gone, so they talked about it like it was a ball and chain. The marriage is like an old ball and chain. Well, do you understand that in Israel, at the time of Christ, they were doing the same thing, only they didn't do ball and chain, they did millstone around the neck. They talked about the responsibility of being a man, a husband and a father. It's like having a millstone around your neck and the Son of God took that expression. I learned that from Dr. Alfred Edersheim in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. The Lord Jesus took that expression and said, imagine having that tied around your neck and you cast into the sea with it, plummeting to the depths neck first. Faster than you can drown. I guess it depends on where you get thrown, right? <laughs> but if you get thrown in the depths of the sea, you would implode before you drown. You could hold your breath long enough to get deep enough to be pulverized by the ocean's pressure. <laughs> There's a thought for you, huh? <laughs> it's a happy thought for the night. The Son of God used descriptions like that to talk to a generation of men about how responsible we are. And we better realize God's watching. And if we lead a kid astray, we're in trouble, serious, serious trouble with God. So did Christ motivate his hearers by the warnings of punishment and cost? Man, he sure did. In, in more ways than I have time to elaborate on. 
He spoke of reward and he wanted us to be compelled by it. Great reward. He would say things like, great is your reward in heaven, you who endure persecution. Great is your reward. And you understand, that's like a good thing. But if all we have are those two motivations, then there's very little difference between us and a wolf. I mean, a wolf can be motivated by, by those things. I'm not saying it's wrong for us to be motivated by those, but I would submit to you that it's wrong for us to only be motivated by those. Because ultimately, they're kind of selfish. What's the highest motivation of all? What is the thing that ought to compel us? And I think, what is the thing that should compel us to do the things that we do and actually make us willing to step up in front of the whole world and identify ourselves as those who've sworn their allegiance to Jesus Christ, even if it means we get locked up, even if it means we get canceled, even if it means that we get fired, even if it means that we're on the outside, ostracized. What is the thing that would make us do that? What is the thing that makes people do that? And they've been doing it for 20 centuries. It's love. Love's the highest motivation of all. Love, but in our case, love coming from us toward the Lord is really more synonymous with gratitude. It's just us loving him back. Mm. It's going to ask you, men. This is, this is my question for tonight. This is the whole reason we're having this, this whole converse, one-sided conversation. Have you actually had your heart captured by Christ? Now, I'll be honest with you. I get bugged. And forgive me, this might offend some of you guys. I don't know. But I hate it when modern preachers say, you just need to fall in love with Jesus. Oh, that ticks me off. That's not, A, it's not a biblical expression, falling in love. Okay, love's not something we fall into. Love is something we're lifted up into. We don't fall into it, and truthfully, we choose it. It's way more an act of the will. See, that's the problem with too many of us. We fall in love with a woman, and then we fall out as easily. You know, marry an ideal, then you live with the real, and so does she. It can be quite disappointing. It can be quite disillusioning. I don't like that expression. It bugs me and I don't see it in scripture. It's not a biblical expression. It's not biblical. To tell our, our young men or old men, you just need to fall in love with Jesus. A, it's not biblical. And B, he ain't just Jesus for the record. He is Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how the apostles speak of him. Read what they write about him. And it is a rare thing from the book of Acts forward through all the epistles, every time they speak of him with only a few exceptions. He is Lord and Christ. They speak of him by the title, a title that is his and a title that he jolly well earned. Wouldn't you agree? He earned the title? Man. 
I've known, maybe you've acquainted with some champions. I met one, in fact, it was uh, up in New Jersey, Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge. After the service, somebody said, hey, you want to, there's a certain UFC fighter in the service. He'd like to meet you. I know you got some interest in that. You, you know, you, you trained in that stuff. You want to you meet this guy? I said, yeah, be great. You know, a guy comes in. We meet, shake hands, talk, and, and I'm in conversation. I go, so you, you, you still got a contract with UFC? And very humbly, he goes, yeah, 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 still got a contract. Really humble. Because as I was driving away, you ever do this? You ever realize you said something so profoundly stupid? As I was driving away, it hit me. He's the champ. He's the champ in that weight class. I saw the fight that he wanted titled by. I'm like, I'm, oh my goodness, I was, so, I was so embarrassed that I asked him. What a dumb question. Still good contract? UFC? You think about what it cost that guy to win that title. You think about what he put himself through. You guys, some of you know about that, right? Basically, in order to be in fighting shape, you got to get beat and beat yourself every single day. There's easier ways to make a living. It was Frankie Edgar I was talking about. And Frankie Edgar had just, um, he just won that title. And the progeny, we know that back then it was BJ Penn and and he beat him soundly. And um, I, so I know some people, I, I called this guy, and this guy called another guy, give me Frankie Edgar's number, I get his number, and I, I called him, and I go, listen, I'm that preacher you met at, after church today. I just want to tell you, I'm really impressed with your humility. Really impressed, because if I had some doofus come up to me and go, you're still going to contract? I'd be going, I'm the champ. I'd be slapping him upside the head. I would, go, I would be wearing that belt to church. <laughs> Put that belt on it just, just so under your shirt. So if somebody goes, you still got a contract? You go, I'm the champ. And <laughs> so he earned that. Did not the Son of God earn a greater title and pay a higher price for it. A title that was by right his already from the foundation of the earth. But then he goes through it. Man, he endures the cross, despising the shame. All that is written in Hebrews chapter 12. He endures the cross, despising the shame. What was the thing that made the cross the horror that it was? The pain? No. There was plenty of pain. No. It was the shame that he despised. What shame? That man, the son of God who had never sinned, baptized into and immersed into all of our combined guilt. Like someone dropped into the cesspool of all of our untreated sewage, all of our guilt collected somewhere, all gathered up. One man, sinless man, 
immersed into it, taking it upon himself. What the scripture says, well, he, God made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. The horror of the cross was that shame associated with that guilt, despising it. Can you imagine? So, sure, you can imagine jumping into the water to save someone you love. Would you jump into the raw, untreated sewage? You would. It's all about motivation, right? If the object of your love was in that, you'd go in, wouldn't you? Christ, not only did he plunge himself into the shame of our guilt, but then the full penalty of the wrath of God upon that guilt. So it's not like somebody just jumping in the sewage. It's worse than that. It's jumping into the sewage, and then the sewage becomes the lava of the wrath of God. He goes into it. He did hell. He tasted hell. He experienced eternal separation from God. He experienced that on the cross. Did he not earn a title doing all of that? Is he not worthy of being referred to as Lord and Christ? What does Christ mean, essentially? Some say the anointed one. Ultimately, it boils right down to the one. There's only one. And he is the one. My question to you is, have you come to know enough about him and how does he reveal himself? He reveals himself by his word. Have you come to know enough to have your heart captured by him and to realize that he is worthy of our allegiance? That he's worthy of our allegiance. He himself is to be our cause. No, not just, not just the cause of like trying to win the world to him. Not just the cause of, okay, I just want to, I want to honor him and when it's all done, hear him say, good job, and you know, that reward. I mean, he himself is the cause. <laughs> He's done so much for us. And, and let me ask you this, does not his um, call to us to continue to go back to his table and remember his broken body and remember his poured out blood? Isn't that the center of Christian practice and gathering? To, to remember, continually remember. You know what, I, by the way, guys, I, I, I hope, I think that, I hope that we get to the point where we realize that communion, breaking bread to remember him, isn't something we just do formally and, and on the, you know, the rotation like we do at our church, probably like here, so once a month, one out of four Sundays, we make it the focus. But I keep telling everybody at our church, it's not the only time. You got a friend who's going through Something, show up with bread and wine. Show up with the elements of communion. You don't have to be some, app, some successor of Peter. 
You don't have to be ordained. You don't have to be some kind of a special, there's no special class according to scripture. If you believe in the broken body and the poured out blood of Christ, you go to a friend who's messing up. The reason why you're going to him is because he's, he's messing up. He's, he's drinking, he's going astray. You say, can we just do this? Can we just eat this bread? Drink this, this cup together and let me remind you of a sinless man who allowed his body to be broken for you and me and his blood to be poured out. I'm telling you, it's a more effective tool than I think we realize. Somebody's mad and, so, and they're all, they got a great cause against their, great case against their wife. They got a case and they're sure that they've, they're justified in being, you know, separated from her. Would you consider just saying, hey, why don't we sit down here at the table for a second and then break out the bread and wine, brother to brother. You go, before we go on and on and on about your case against your wife, what do you say? We eat this bread and drink this cup and remember, examine our own hearts. <laughs> There's a whole lot less to talk about after you've done that and his going on and on about his, his wife. What is the point of communion, guys, but to continue to, to get us to look back at what was done for us, to solicit in us, to continue to fuel in us the gratitude that should motivate us, the gratitude that should compel us. We should love our king because we've been loved by him. All right, does, that, does anything I just said make sense? What should, we should be compelled by the promise of reward. It's legitimate. We should be compelled by fear of consequences. Remember, remember being young and we were too stupid to fear consequences? You guys, any of you gray hairs, remember? It's a miracle we lived long enough to be gray because we didn't ever count cost and we didn't, oh my, I think how many times you'd have that little fork in the road where somebody would go, hey, before you do that, maybe we ought to shut that breaker off. And you go, nah, we ain't gonna, we can, we're going to do this quick. Or, or somebody would go, you think we ought to tie that load down? And you go, nah, no, man, we, we're not going that far. You remember those days where we didn't look ahead and count the cost? Proverbs, Solomon said in Proverbs, the prudent man foresees trouble and avoids it but not the fool. The fool proceeds and is punished. Oh, I've collected so much scar tissue that way. That decade of my 20s. Oh, the angels of God that I'm sure I entertained. I mean, they were entertained. You want to be entertaining angels? I'm sure they go, hey, hey, what's this? What's this kid? I'm sure there were times angels were going, God, please, your highness, a transfer, please. <laughs> Give me another one. This was hopeless. He is, he never looks ahead. He never counts the cost. I remember that, so you start counting the cost after you start experiencing the cost. It's so, young man, you're wiser if you already do that. You don't have to have pain be your teacher. Anybody else here have pain as your teacher? 
pain and cost. But man, there's a smarter way to learn. The smartest way to learn is from other people's pain. (laughs) Just remember that. I know, Ben, you know that. The smartest way to learn is from other people's stupid. Watch their stupid, how it pays off, and go, oh, I'm not doing that. (laughs) We should be motivated by the promise of reward, by the fear of cost, that's not going to stop us from doing everything because some things we just determine it's worth the cost. I'm going to do it. You know, love will compel you. I'm, I'm going to go in. I'm going into the fire. I'm going to go after them. You know, we'll, we'll go forget the cost. But that's usually not the reward. It's, it's love that will compel you to do the stuff that even reward won't. It's love that will call you and, and motivate you to do things that are purely sacrificial. Love does that. Love will make you do things that no amount of rules or consequences. <laughs> Remember those old cowboy movies, guys? Any of you guys watch old cowboy movies? I still do. Like the only thing good to watch is old black and white cowboy movie. There's always bad guys with pistols shooting at the feet of somebody trying to make them dance. Dance! They're shooting at their feet to try to get them to you know, they're the bad guys. I would like to think I would take a bullet in the foot first before I just dance because somebody's shooting at my feet. I'm, I, I watch those movies and I'm thinking, I, I, no way. Just stand there and go, I'm going to shoot my feet. Oh, and drop and you get shot in the foot. And, but don't dance. Don't be their clown. <laughs> I, I'm not a dancing guy. I don't believe in it myself. I don't know about you Cuban brothers. Dance might be part of your culture. I don't know. I don't, that's not the culture I came from. I just, I, I, don't, I don't dance. I don't mind holding my wife and, and rocking and, and calling it dance, but all that other stuff that is called dance, it's not for me. Not for me. Nope, but don't think it's, just don't think it's manly. <laughs> I just do you know, stuff men do. They, they put on really, really tight clothes and go to clubs. And shake their booties. And still feel like, man, I can't, I don't understand that. I don't know how you could just not bust out laughing right in the middle of your. <laughs> I think alcohol plays a part because, you know, your perception gets warped and you're thinking, I'm awesome. I am, I am, I've never been cooler. <laughs> and you never look more stupid. But, you know, alcohol do that too with regard to you. The distance between Reality and your ability to fight and reality can be enormous. You guys know that. By the way, there's a survey, national survey that reveals <laughs> that almost all of the men in our culture believe that even though they don't train, they could fight just like what they've seen in the movies if the situation demands it. Do you know that most men actually believe that they could do what they've seen in the movies if they had to? (laughs) They have no reason for believing that, but they believe it. It's even worse when you're drunk. You believe you're regular Bruce Lee. 
or you're, or as a driver, you're, you're Mario Andretti, or you're whoever. You're just, you know, the distance between reality of your dysfunction and your perception is enormous. Now, back to the dancing thing. I don't dance, and I don't get drunk, so, so those two never come together. But my little daughter, all grown up now, and mother herself, she was a little girl one time, and she came to me and goes, Daddy, I want you to take me to father-daughter dance. Valentine's Day. And I went, no! I don't dance. And I saw her walk away melting, just wilted. She walked away, and I couldn't believe what it did to my heart. What it did to my heart. Guys, she's walking away. I want to say I'm sorry. I want to say all kinds of stuff. I immediately got in my Jeep and went down and bought tickets for that stupid dance. I didn't just do words. I went and got tickets. I came back and showed her. I'm sorry, Jess, I'll take you. I'll take you. I'll take you to the dance. And then that horrible day came. <laughs> that, that dreadful day arrived. And I, I dreaded it coming. It came. My mama dressed her up all pretty. I put on my best cleanest jeans and we got a Jeep. We went down to the Civic Center. Brothers. Uh, walking. I was dying, dying over and over. Just walking in the direction of that building and hearing that. Oh. But I'll tell you, man, when I opened up that door, and I opened up that door, and it looked like because <laughs> all the men are grown up and all the daughters are little. You couldn't see the daughters. It looked like some kind of gay <laughs> ritual. A whole bunch of, it, it looked like some kind of <laughs> middle-aged gay event. And then you, you, know, you go waiting in there and you see those little girls, they're all they're in there. You just couldn't see them looking at the crowd from the side. And I was, I'm telling you, I died. I died over and over. You could, you, could, you could threaten me with bullets to the feet. Go dance. Get in there and dance. I go, kill me right now. <laughs> you could offer me money. I say, get in there and dance. And I would go, no, I'm not that kind of guy. I'm going to take your money to go dance. I'm not going to be your clown. I'm not going to be your fool. But there I am. Walking into the middle of that. I remember just going, don't look at me. Quit looking at me. <laughs> don't be looking at me. And took, her little, <laughs> took her little hands. I'm right in the middle of that ritual. It was really pitiful. All of them guys were just doing this. Again, from the outside, it looked really bad. My daughter, she was, she was amused. And then when that Village People song came on, <laughs> seems like it does at every dance. YMCA, she saw me lock up and she laughed and goes, come on, Dad, let's get out of here. And we left. Just for the record, we, we did not dance to the Village People. <laughs> we left on the Village People, okay? It was a test, just a, just a test, and, and I, as far as I know, she just remembers, 
that her dad was willing to die for her. But love will make you do things that no promise of reward or no fear of punishment can make you do. All right, one last thing. How do we, because here's the deal. How do we love? How do we affect that love for Christ? It's not something you're going to fall into. It's something you're going to fuel. It's something that you're going to actually feed, not fall into. If he reveals himself and you see him as he actually is, you see the love of Christ, the courage of Christ, the purity of Christ, the wisdom of Christ. These things affect our heart. Okay, here's the problem. I think you, people hear the command, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then they go, I can't, I don't feel that. He did not say, thou shalt feel love for the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love is not a mere feeling. It's something bigger and higher than a feeling. And there's far too much focus on feelings in American churchianity. And it really alienates men. Well, most men. It alienates most men. There's, you know, there's guys that are different. And they're whatever. Us regular guys... Don't just come into church and just go, oh, and then just feel our arms floating up. <laughs> Ladies' arms float up. When you watch them, they come into church, and you'll see their arms just float up. <laughs> they do that. They get all this emotion and all this feeling, and just lifts their arms. When a man lifts his arms, it is more an act of the will. It is an act more of the will. They don't float. Love is not a feeling. Love is really a matter of assigning worth or recognizing worth. It is the worthiness of our king that we need to focus on. There may be things that we feel love for. I don't know you guys. But there may be somebody in here that's really struggling with this awful pull back to the bottle or some awful pull back to, to drugs or they oh, lust, lust in all that world of visual imagery that pulls at us. And we actually have access that no generation of men ever had. And we feel something, we feel a magnetism to that. If you're waiting to feel a magnetism to the Lord before you do what you're supposed to do, it's likely never to happen. It's, I'm telling you, this, this is my last thing I want to say to you. Brothers, I think it, you, you might see that other thing. And it, it promises a payoff. It promises a reward. The visual imagery of, of porn promises a, a thrill, however temporary. You might have some emotion toward that. You might even have some drawing to it. But to reject it, to turn your back on it, to resist it, 
because you know it's a lie, because you know it has got a cost associated with it. It's a cheap, pathetic, non-manly imitation of, you know, something that God intends to be real. And you turn your back on it because you determine the worthiness of, of Christ is greater. You know, he, he, I, he, I owe him. He's done. What did that, what is that whole, that thing ever done for me in comparison to the price he paid for me? And who he is, who he actually is. I'm like, I'm really humbled that even, he would even know my name, that the creator of the whole universe actually knows me and calls me. I don't necessarily have a whole bunch of feelings. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Whether I feel like he's worthy or not, he remains worthy. And the truth remains the truth. And what do the just live by? The just live by faith. Faith is that acceptance. It is our heart's response to the revelation of God. We don't live by feelings. So any of you men here who've made the mistake of trying to feel your way into more godliness, quit it. Let it go. Trying to feel your way into being a deeper Christian? Forget it. Faith your way. Quit trying to feel your way. Faith your way. Faith. They just live by it. Is God, did he say what he said? Yes, he did. Do I believe him? He promises reward. He warns of punishment. He reveals to me all that he's done for me. I believe that. I accept that. All right, and based on that, I act. I, I have ranted a lot about, the, and I hope you guys, I'm sure you're not like that. Don't even use the word feel in your vocabulary. The whole Starbucks skinny pants world around you is, they can't even start a sentence without going, I feel like, I feel like, um, I, what, I feel like I was in a Starbucks once. No, it wasn't a Starbucks. It was in, uh, I was in Seattle is why I was thinking Starbucks. I was actually standing in Seattle at a sandwich shop about to catch a plane back home. I'm standing there looking at the sandwich board. And this one sandwich... It was described, and arugula was in there. I can't remember what arugula was. I turned to this Seattle girl in line with me. I said, young lady, I can't remember what arugula is. It's arugula. You know what she said? She said, I feel like you either love it or hate it. <laughs> I go, but what is it? Okay, you got some feelings about it. But what is the substance? Turns out it's some leaves, right? <laughs> it's some leaves. I'm telling you, there are people that can't start a sentence. They're going, I feel like that's really true. I feel like that's true a lot. If you can ask a generation of young guys, has anybody seen um, where I left my keys? I feel like 
they're in the kitchen. You feel like this? Do you have a thought? Do you have a thought? Do you have a suspicion? Do you have a hint? Do you have anything other than a feeling? And where did that come from, you guys? That comes from a lost, wicked, secular culture where nothing is absolute, and you can't just say something like it's true. No, you can only say it's true for you. So all you can actually do, and the only thing that the educational system is telling you to trust is what you feel. And if you feel contrary to all logic, if you feel contrary to biology, contrary to psychology, sociology, and anthropology, and every other field of science, but you feel like you're actually a woman trapped inside this man's body. They tell you to act on that feeling like that's the only thing that's true. I'm telling you, that whole mentality has influenced Christianity. And I'm here to tell you, the just will live by faith alone. The just will live by faith, not by what you feel. You invite, oh, here's the thing too. They'll tell you, oh, you've got to be true to your feelings. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite. Really? They'll tell you, if you're denying some feelings, suppressing them, there's something wrong with that. That's wrong. No, no, no. You may in traffic have feelings about somebody in traffic that you want to hurt. Should you suppress that? Yes, you should. You should actually do not act on that feeling at all. That feeling's bad. That feeling's wrong, right? But they're, they're, they're telling you right now, you just got to be true to what you feel. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite. And there are people who go, that's what I have to be. I have to be real. I have to be true. In fact, that's the truest of all Christians. They just do exactly what they feel. If we all do what we feel, people are going to get hurt. Here's a thought. I'll leave you with this one. As followers of Jesus Christ, men, we only have two choices. Either we die to ourselves, to our pride, and to our lust, our ambition, our anger, and whatever, our lust for vengeance. Either we die or we kill. We will kill our wife, our children, if not physically. We'll break their hearts. We'll kill them. We'll destroy them. If we all do what we want to do instead of dying to wants that we know are wrong, we'll kill. So simply, we, each one of us are either going to love our wife as Christ has loved the church and gave himself. We're called to die. Or we're going to love ourselves and we're going to go after someone else who's younger or in our perception um, prettier or, or appreciates us more, more impressed with us. How could anybody who's lived with us be impressed with us? How could anyone who's done our laundry, how could anybody who's ever washed our underwear be impressed with us? I'm serious, dudes. Anybody we've shared a bathroom with, how could they ever be impressed with us? 
We find ourselves in those forks in the road, and either we choose to do what we want, and we go after that other woman and kill the one we're leaving behind, or we die to ourselves and sacrifice so that they can live. You know what's crazy? Turns out that's where happiness is. And that actually pays off. <laughs> and that other thing, we go following our feelings and we go after that other woman. That is not what happened. You might find some pleasure, but not happiness. And it's got a big cost with it. Like nobody ever believes anything you say and nobody respects you anymore. And your kids are hurt. They're all killed. And nobody wants to be in your life. So I'm saying again, we, all of us, either kill or die. But it turns out dying is where happiness is. You guys, you know what I'm saying? It turns out that's where, you gotta die to live. It turns out that in dying for others, we find there the real meaning of life, fulfillment. And we get to get old with somebody. And we get to see another generation. All the goodness of it. Oh, I would be a liar. I would stand in front of you and lie if I suggested to you that I was never tempted by another woman. I am ashamed of how much I have been attempted. Attempted? Tempted. <laughs> uh, there have been attempts made. That's <laughs> yeah, a funny thing. Because there's an illusion, and that's all it is. It's an illusion. Christ will make you look better than you actually are. You know that. And it's actually Christ that uh, women are drawn to. But a man can actually think, no, it's actually them. <laughs> They're drawn to Christ. Everyone's drawn to Christ. See him like he actually is. He makes us look better than we actually are. He makes us sound wiser than we are. He actually does produce something that women will actually be attracted to even when we're old and out of shape. Even when our hair's thin. And there's, believe it or not, there's still women that will go, ah, oh, that's, you're the, kind, you're the kind of guy I want. I am ashamed how many times in my life I've been tempted. Temptation has been overcome because of the, what I'm saying to you tonight, living by faith, not by feelings. And every single time, I've been able to turn my back, walk away from that opportunity, and embrace that dear woman that I've spent all these years with. God has given us 36 years together. And now to be in that place where I watch how much she loves and how much my grandchildren are loved by her, how much my children have been loved by her, how much the church family's been loved by her, and it really does pay off. I think about the miles that we've done together the miles and the decades, and I'm happy, I'm grateful. Even now that I look back and think of what would have been, I know it would have cost everything and produced no happiness at all. I say to you brothers, we either die or we kill, and if we kill, we're gonna be miserable. We'll hate ourselves for the rest of our lives. It'll cost us eternally, I think. If we die like our king, we will rise. That's where life is. I don't know, any of you guys got things pulling at you? 
I don't know. You know, there was this one book, it's probably long forgotten. It was going around among church guys, Christian men. We're reading this one book, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. And, and all the guys who would read that book would go, yeah, yeah, that's it. Because the author, part of his thesis was, men are asking the wrong question. Instead of asking what needs to be done, men should be asking, what makes me come alive? What was I made for? And I submit to you that that first question is the right question. What needs to be done? That's the manly question. The boy says, what makes me come alive? That's boy crap. Me. What makes me happy? Tell you what makes us happy. Making other people happy. Dying for them. Sacrificing ourselves. Working hard. To be able to give. Don't even start asking a question. What makes me come alive? What a, that's a stupid question. Whose are you? Who do you belong to? Keep falling back on that. And as followers of him, brothers, we die like him in order that we can live. Let me just ask you, any of you guys tonight, I mean, like, I, I don't want to say this. It kind of applies to everybody. We, we all got the world pulling at us. We've all got temptation. It comes in various forms. Either it's the temptation to take vengeance or the temptation to take something that's not ours. Or There's all kinds of temptations. But if tonight what you have heard has profoundly convicted you and you know you need to make a shift in your heart from following your lust or your feelings and your desires to following his command by faith. If you know, if God's dealing with you, would you be honest enough to say so by standing up? Because we're going to pray for you. You guys who are, you know you need to make a shift in your heart. You need to change. You need to go into another mode. We need to quit living by what we feel and we need to live by what we know. And we need, we need to live by what God has said. Because that's way more trustworthy than our stupid lying feelings. All right, brothers who are still sitting, would you stand up and reach over and put a hand on these men's shoulders? In fact, put a hand on the shoulder of the guy next to you if you're standing, and let's pray for each other. Let's pray for each other. Father, here we are. We're just a bunch of men, and you know us. You know everything we think. You know everything we've been dealing with, and you know how wrongly some of us have thought. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would please move upon our heart with a firm conviction that our lives belong to you, that we owe you. We don't owe the world, we don't owe porn, we don't owe the devil, we don't owe drugs, chemicals, we, we don't owe anybody but you. You gave us our existence. You created us, you've put up with us. You have loved us even when we're not lovable. So here we stand. There's a bunch of men. We're weak and we admit it. We feel the pull and we feel it powerfully. But we don't want to live by what we feel. We want to live by what you've said. We consider you more trustworthy. So here we stand asking you, 
help us. Empower us by the Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to who you are, to all you've done, to your worthiness. And help us, Lord, to have the wisdom to choose you over everything. We want to be motivated by men who believe your promise of reward. We wish to be motivated by is those men who believe your warnings of punishment or cost. But more than anything else, you said, he that, loves, he that is forgiven much loves much, and we want to love you much. We're not talking about feelings. They come and they go. We're talking about recognizing your worthiness. And I ask you, help us to love you like you deserve. We pray for each other as brothers. Help us to love you like you deserve. And we pray it in the holy name of our mighty king, our worthy king, Jesus. Amen. Amen, Amen brothers. Amen.